And we're going to look at Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. So if you have a copy of the scripture, you can follow along as I read Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. Remember, this is directly after, at least in this narrative, of that proclamation. This is my beloved son. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray the Lord would bless the reading and the study of his word today. Father, thank you for this passage. Oh, uh, Lord Jesus, you are, you are shown and tried and proven in this passage in a, a way that is encouraging to us, in a way that is remarkable and, and wonderful and, and reveals just how committed you were to fulfilling the will of the Father uh, you're proven and tried and shown in a, this passage in a way that also teaches us uh, who also fall into or experience many temptations a way out, a way through. Oh God, open our eyes, open our minds to this passage today. Help us to see uh, Jesus Christ lifted up in this passage, but help us to see how it applies to us even today, even today. We pray that you would meet with us in this way as you teach us, as you illuminate the scriptures by the Spirit. Pray that we would respond in a way that would bring glory to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I wonder what your favorite Bible story is. Um, you can tell me later. If you're like me, and I think many of you are, and you grew up in church and you grew up in Sunday school, and you heard uh, the great Bible stories from a very young age. Um, one of the great joys in the last couple years of my life is to hear uh, Chloe, now that she's old enough to, to hear and to learn, is to hear her repeating back the, the stories and the truths from Scripture that she's learning. It, it brings me a lot of joy to see that passed on to the next generation. That's what we're called to do. And when we think about the stories that we learn in Sunday school as a child, there are certainly a few, I think, that stick out, a few big ones. Uh, of course, there's the creation story. That's a big one. Um, there's Noah's Ark. Uh, maybe we think of, of God leading his children in the wilderness and the parting of the Red Sea. Um, we think of, at least I do, maybe the story of Samson, things like that. But I think one takes the cake in my mind 
and probably in a lot of people's minds, if they remember not much else, they might remember the story of David and Goliath. Uh, the story of David and Goliath, I think, is attractive and memorable to us because all of us enjoy hearing about the victory of an underdog. Uh, we enjoy these kind of stories in sports. We enjoy these kind of stories in history where, where the unsuspected one becomes somehow the hero or the victor. And we like hearing about that. And David's story there with Goliath is one of those. Uh, here you have a young, uh, ruddy shepherd boy, David. He's, he's lean and strong, but he was not a warrior. And as I was preparing for today's sermon, my mind kept going back to David's interaction with King Saul in his tent before he went out to the battlefield. Uh, David recounted to King Saul how he had defeated a, a lion and a bear with his own hands while tending his father Jesse's sheep. And eventually Saul relented to the to young David and said, okay, you can go. But before sending him out to battle, he offered him something. He offered him his armor and his sword. And before David departed the tent, he kind of donned this armor and he put the sword on his hip and he said, I can't fight with these. I, I can't fight with them. Now, maybe they were too big. Maybe they were Maybe he couldn't handle them. Swords back in those days were heavy. For whatever reason, he said, I can't fight with them. And he gave this reason. He said, I cannot go with these because I haven't proven them. That is, he hadn't tested them. He'd never fought with them. He had no experience with Saul's armor and his weapon. So he went without him. And we know how the story ends. David indeed went to battle without a sword and a shield, simply with the sling and the stones and he defeated Goliath in a miraculous way because God was with him and God fought for him. And in that story, humanly speaking, the underdog became victorious. Well, in today's passage, we have the story of a true, perhaps in a greater David, the true and greater warrior, Jesus, who is in a very real battle with another giant of sorts, I would say even a, a greater giant. In his temptation, Jesus went toe to toe with the adversary of all adversaries, Satan, the devil himself. Before I say anything else, I want to say this. Uh, know this, dear one, that this battle is real. Uh, the spiritual battles that we fight are very real things. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. That's why Paul recounted in Ephesians 6 and said that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I'll admit, in the Western world in which we live in, we're not so predisposed to thinking about spiritual things, particularly if they seem mystical to us. And for the most part, the Bible is not a mystical thing. God has spoken clearly and vividly, but one of the things he has clearly told us is that these spiritual battles that we fight, often invisible to our eyes, are very real. And I would say that temptation to sin is probably the biggest one that we will fight individually. My mind thinks of the story of uh, Martin Luther 
the German reformer who he always recounted having intense spiritual battles. And in one scene, he even recounted literally throwing his inkwell across the room as he perceived, uh, whether it was a, a demon or a, an oppressor, uh, a tempter there. That's how real those battles were to him. Now, that's just an anecdote. You may not experience it just in that way, but I will say, if you are alive, you will experience the warfare that comes from the evil one. Satan and his minions are very real foes, and they are, according to Scripture, to be fought valiantly. Now, as we read this story, Jesus had just come off the incredibly high point of his baptism, his acclamation by God the Father, as Gary read earlier, his anointing with the Spirit as the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and rested on him. It was a great confirmation, a a revelation to all of us as we read it, that this is the Son of God. He is the Savior. He is the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist proclaimed, who takes away sins. And remarkably, right after this, he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, isn't that often how life works? After we experience some great high point, some sort of victory, whether, uh, whether it's simply spiritual, a battle in our mind, or whether we've overcome some sort of temptation, immediately we're often met with some sort of great challenge like this. Now, I will say that the challenge that Jesus faced here is probably far greater and unlike any experience we will ever have, but it was a challenge that was real. The following battle that ensues was intense, and it was personal. It's stories like these that we must remember that Jesus' humanity was as real. It's as real as ours is. It's interesting that in these temptations, Satan tries to lure and tempt Jesus into using his divinity to overstep his humanity in self-preservation. Yet, the way that Jesus fights these temptations is perhaps surprising if you've never come across this story before. Uh, Jesus didn't supernaturally banish Satan. Uh, He didn't cast him off or enact some kind of force field like you would imagine in maybe the Star Wars saga. Rather, we find Jesus fighting this battle, this intense, very real personal battle with Satan in a very specific way. We note that in this passage, he is led by the Spirit and he relies on the Word of God. Those are his weapons. They are the same weapons that God had used in centuries past to fight temptation. And listen, they're the same weapons that God's people have been using to fight temptation ever since. David didn't use Saul's armor and sword because he hadn't proven them. He hadn't tested them. Jesus has proven these implements of battle, and they stand as sure and as sharp as they were on that day for spiritual battles. Before we dive into this passage, kind of a a thematic passage that kind of gives us some insight maybe into this. I always go to John, 1 John 2, 15 and 16. 
where the Apostle John gives us this admonition. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. The desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Beloved, these are the ways in which we are tempted, and we ought to note that this was the same way that Jesus was tempted as well in this scene. And as we go through this passage, we'll see this. Jesus' temptation was as real as ours, and the weapons that Jesus used to defeat Satan in his temptations are the same weapons that he supplies us with as well. If you have your outline uh, handout, you'll see four things, the stage for battle, the attacks of the enemy, the weapons of the king, and the results of the battle. Firstly, we'll see the stage for battle as we kind of look at the onset of this, what's going on. Verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He was hungry. Now, it's critical to note what sets the stage for this battle, and that is the fact that Jesus was led by the Spirit into this situation. Now, we know from the book of James that God never tempts any man to do evil. James says in James 1.13, Let no one say he's tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That's a clear statement in Scripture. Uh, we can deduce from that in this situation that while Jesus was being led into the wilderness to be tempted was part of God's plan, it was not God's desire or his intention that Jesus would actually fall in that temptation and sin. It's kind of a critical thing here for our information, uh, and that is that the New Testament speaks of testing and temptation with the same word most of the time. And it can be a little bit confusing, but context usually gives us clues. God often gives or leads us into tests in our lives. Trials and hardships in our lives are tests. They are meant to prove and to strengthen us in our walk with Christ. But just because God is testing us or allowing us to be tested does not mean that he is tempting us to fail in those temptations and to sin. James is also very clear that we as humans are tempted to sin from within. He says every man is tempted and when he is drawn away by his own desires and he is enticed. That's why we can't say when we're in a test and we fail that test and we sin. Well, God brought me into this hardship. God brought me into this difficult place in life. It's his fault. He put me here. I had no other choice. That's simply not the case. It's simply not the case. The reason that we sin in those situations is because we gave in to our sinful desires. The reason that we are... Uh, tempted to sin in the testing is because we fell back on the flesh rather than walking in the Spirit. And you might say, well, well, doesn't God know that we'll be tempted to sin if he puts those situations in our lives? Doesn't he know that we're human, we're not perfect? Yes, he does. And just like he knew Jesus would be met 
by the devil in the wilderness. Now, this is purely hypothetical because Jesus remained sinless. Spoiler alert. Uh, But had Jesus fallen in those temptations, it wouldn't have been the Spirit's fault for leading him into the wilderness, and it wouldn't have been God the Father's fault for ordaining this to happen. He knew, God knew that Satan would come to Jesus at this point of incredible physical weakness after fasting for 40 days. In this, we find that God can be sovereign in these situations of testing and trials without himself tempting us to sin. If we sin, it is not God's fault and it is not God's desire. And listen to this. If we sin... It's not the devil's fault either. We can't shift the blame. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? We are fully culpable for our own actions. Now, even in the title of this message, there's a play on words. Because both the Hebrew and Greek words for temptation really mean to test or to prove. And here in this story, Jesus is tested and he is proven. Abraham was tested and proven by God when God gave him a command to sacrifice his son Isaac. Uh, Job was tested by God when God gave Satan sort of a carte blanche access to test Job. These things were part of God's purpose. And so this testing in Jesus' life is God's purpose to test and to prove his beloved son, but he also tests and proves the very tactics that Jesus would use in fighting this battle. We go on then, secondly, and see the attacks of the enemy. We'll jump around a little bit. And we'll look at the, the bulk of this passage kind of in two waves. Uh, we see the attacks of the enemy. They'll just read around a little bit. Look at verse Number three, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Uh, verse six, uh, the devil, or five and six, the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And verse nine, uh, The devil said to him, all of these, speaking of the kingdoms of the world, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. These are the tests of the devil. They are the the attacks of the enemy. And there's a layer of God's sovereignty that we kind of have insight and we have to keep in mind. God works through means, okay? There are always layers of cause and effect. He works through natural laws that he has set in place. He works through, through people and their desires and the intuitions he gives them. He works through all of those things. From God's perspective, this was purely a testing and approving of Jesus. But from Satan's perspective, in a very real way, His intention was fully evil, okay? Satan wanted Jesus to fall in these temptations and sin. God had no intention that Jesus succumb to to those things and sin, but the devil had every intention that Jesus succumb to those things and sin. 
Now, why doesn't the all-powerful God who is holy and righteous just at once do away with the devil and do away with his demons and remove every thought of sin and temptation? Well, there are probably very big reasons for that. Things like the display of God's glory and salvation, the display of God's wrath and reprobation, the display of God's ultimate victory through the gospel, but we don't know the intricate mind of God. And for whatever reason, he allows us to walk in this world that is filled with these kind of temptations, just like Jesus walked in. It's under the purview of his sovereignty. But still, remember, it was not God's intention or desire that Jesus fall, yet it very truly was Satan's desire and intention that Jesus fall. At the end of verse 2, we're told specifically that Jesus was hungry. Now that hunger was a two-edged sword. Jesus was hungry. Why? Because he'd been fasting for 40 days. You can look at me and say that I have never fasted for 40 days. I haven't. I'll be honest. That is an incredible discipline of spiritual life. He was walking in the Spirit in this whole process. Spiritually, okay, he was prepared for battle. He had been communing with God, no doubt in, in ceaseless prayer, uh, despising his earthly satisfaction, and only focusing on his spiritual nourishment. Spiritually, he was prepared for this battle, but physically, listen, physically he was famished. Jesus is a real human, remember. Uh, he has real human needs and desires, hunger being very much one of those. Uh, you and I speak of being hungry after the five hours between lunch and dinner. But this hunger is the understatement of the millennia. I don't know this kind of hunger, but Jesus did. He knew it fully well at that moment. And just as Jesus knew this kind of hunger in a very real way, the devil also knew the basic desire uh, of human life. And food is one of those critical basic desires. And the first attack of the enemy is quite a simple one. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be become bread. Now, when we read that, that temptation, if you are the Son of God, that word if could be equally translated sense, okay? Satan already knew the answer to that question. He knows who this is. He's no dummy. Uh, it's often said that Satan is probably one of the most brilliant theologians in all of existence. He just misapplies everything he knows. He knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Satan knew the drill. He knew that Jesus was who God said he is. Satan is not testing whether or not Jesus was God's son, but rather what kind of a son would Jesus prove to be? Would he be obedient, submissive, following his father's plan, or could Jesus be enticed to use his power for his own personal gain? If so, then God's plan could easily be foiled. For certainly if Jesus couldn't endure this temptation, he would never endure the temptation to save his own life from a gruesome and horrible death on a cross just a few years later. In a very specific way, this temptation goes back to the Israelites' experience in the wilderness. Uh, the 40 days fasting reminds us of the 40 years wandering 
the hunger of Jesus reminds us of the hunger of Israel. And what was Israel's response? It was to murmur and to complain. And what did God do? He graciously provided them bread from heaven. And what did they do when he provided that? Well, after a few days, they murmured and they complained. Satan was leaning in hard here. He was attempting to look and appeal to Jesus' desire of the flesh. Uh, Satan was, it's as if he was saying, uh, Jesus, you have the right to be fed. Uh, God provides food for his people. Uh, you have the power. Just, just turn these stones into bread. You can do it. It's fine. Note that this experience of hunger was no sign of sinfulness on Jesus' part. Uh, the basic desire and need of food is not a failure. Food was part of God's original perfect earth. The temptation here was to obtain food at the cost of disobeying and subverting God's plan and Jesus' submission to it. And moreover, to obey Satan rather than God in this instance. We'll get to Jesus' responses in a minute. Let's see the second temptation. In the second temptation, Jesus or Satan takes Jesus to the holy city. That would be Jerusalem, and he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, from what we can tell, this transportation seems to be a real thing. And uh, the pinnacle is probably referring to one of the wings or points on the temple that, would, that jutted out. And some of these points on the temple were, were well over 150 feet tall. So when Satan told Jesus to throw himself down, not only was the temptation real, the danger was real. Now, this temptation is interesting uh, because Satan uses Scripture to tempt the one who wrote the Scripture. Perhaps Satan is picking up on uh, Jesus' proclivity to quote Scripture as after he told him to command tones, uh, stones to be turned to bread, uh, Jesus quoted, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but he quoted, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. That's what Matt read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here, Satan quotes scripture for himself, and he quotes from Psalm 9. Uh, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's as if he's saying, okay, two can play at this game. And he says, I see you memorize some scripture from Deuteronomy. What about this verse in the Psalms that says the angels will protect you, Jesus? Isn't that true? Aren't you the son of God? Why don't you just prove it to everyone here and now? I think in, in one way we can see that this temptation is an appeal to the desire of the eyes. How, how would that be? Well, it would have been a, an appeal to the desire of the eyes of those who would have seen this great feat. It's, it's taking something fantastic and extraordinary and putting it before people's vision to, to make this point. If Jesus had leapt off this pinnacle and survived, certainly he would have been exclaimed as supernatural. It would have been the, the sign of the century, an appeal to the wow factor, to the next big thing, to the, the fantastic. And those appeals always seem to be right around the corner. We're always looking for that next big thing. What's going to amaze us next? What's going to shock us next? Whether it's advertising that appeals to the, the lust, the desire of our eyes, whether it's the temptation for us to try to appeal to the desire of others' eyes, that desire to please the eyes 
is always and ever with us. Finally, the text tells us that Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Now, obviously, uh, this must have been some kind of a, of a vision or however it took place. There isn't a mountain in all the world that you could see every kingdom, but Satan sort of unfolds all the kingdoms of the world before Jesus' eyes and he says, all these can be yours. All these can be yours. Imagine he points to the kingdom of Egypt and he points to Rome and Persia and everything imaginable, all their glory. And he says, all these can be yours if, if you will only worship me. Now here is an offer to expedite Jesus' earthly kingship. We know, those of us who are privileged to now have the fullness of the scripture, we know in the book of Revelation, it is proclaimed that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. The funny thing is, uh, Satan was somewhat of a prophet here. All these kingdoms would be Jesus, but they would not be won by his bowing down to or worshiping the evil one. Here, the offer is to appeal to the desire of everyone else also, because many people in those days were looking for a political messiah. They were looking for one who could overthrow Rome, one who could extend the glory of Jerusalem and Israel to the fullness of the earth. Part of that was, was a good desire because the Old Testament does speak of all the earth bearing witness to the glory of God's people and bringing people from all over the earth to that kingdom. But had Jesus succumbed to this temptation, it would not have been the way that God had intended it. Not only would it have been disobedient to God, but it would have been uh, breaking the, the primary, the, the, the fundamental uh, rule that you worship the Lord God and Him alone. All the kingdoms in the world can be yours if you will only worship me. These are the temptations. These are the tests. These are the attacks of the enemy. What do we see next? We see the weapons of the king. All of these attacks were real. They were real appeals uh, to, to desires that would be in any one of us, desires for, for nourishment or for fame or for glory. But what was Jesus' response? What was his response in all of these temptations? What was his sword? And what was his shield in this battle? As we read the passage before, and as you no doubt know this passage well, Jesus repeats himself all three times. It is written. It is written. It is written. All three temptations from Satan were met directly with God's word. And not just met with God's word, but met with God's word rightly applied. For the first temptation uh, to turn stones into bread, his response was to quote from Deuteronomy Eight. Matt read this verse earlier, but I read it again. He humbled you. God humbled his people and let them hunger and fed them with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know, listen, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
When Jesus quoted this, he is in essence saying, God can provide for me and sustain my physical life just as he did for Israel in the desert. What is more important is whether I believe and trust what he says. Now, it's not that Jesus or scripture in general are disregarding the need for physical food, but it's getting the priority straight. In this temptation, Satan wanted Jesus to simply look at his hunger. But Jesus instead looked to God, to his word, to his promises. God and his word must always take the prominent place in our thinking, and especially in times of testing and temptation. For the temptation to leap off the pinnacle of the temple and prove the angel's safeguarding, Jesus' response again was to quote from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter number 6, where it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I love this response in particular, because if you remember, in this temptation, Satan used Scripture as well. And this is really reaching all the way back into these old tactics that started at the Garden of Eden, whereas the serpent, Satan said, did God really say that? Satan calls God's word into question here by twisting it, by misapplying it, by taking it out of context. But Jesus did not simply have words of Scripture memorized. He was aware of their meaning. That's critical to us because it's not simply enough to have words of Scripture memorized as if they're random, uh, disjointed literature. We must know what God is saying in his word. We must allow the Spirit to illuminate the words of God. You can make the Bible say anything you'd like it to if you take it out of context. And that's exactly what Satan is trying to do here. He often disguises himself as a messenger of light. And scripture taken out of context, I think, is a big way in which he does that. For the final temptation where Satan showed the kingdoms of the world and said, these can be yours if you'll just worship me. Jesus again says, it is written. And he goes again to Deuteronomy 6, where it says, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Even if all the kingdoms of the world were Satan's to divvy up, not even that temptation was enough to get any reaction from Jesus. To succumb to that temptation would be the blatant disregard for the foundation of the Old Testament, the worship of the one true God alone. Jesus said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. These were Jesus' weapons. This was his fight against the evil one. And what were the results? What's the outcome of all this? Well, verse 11 tells us that the devil left him. And the angels did come to minister to him, but they didn't do it on Satan's terms. They did it on God's terms. Simply put, Jesus was proven, and these weapons were proven. That didn't mean the battle was over for good. If you read Luke's account of this story, uh, it tells us that the devil departed him until an opportune time. That is, Satan didn't give up. Uh, He is a persistent foe. But listen, the precedent had been set. 
The tactics were established and the weapons were proven. Uh, the pattern would not be broken. Jesus would never succumb to the temptation from Satan, not even in his dying moments. Now, the primary, the biggest application for this passage to us is the point that the author of Hebrews makes in Hebrews 4.15. Jesus was tempted like us, only he remained sinless. Jesus proved in this fashion, in his whole life, to be worthy, to be our perfect and faithful high priest. Because he is, as Hebrews tells us, a high priest who's not ignorant or uninformed about our temptations and our trials. He has been put to the test by God the Father. He has been tempted by the evil one. And he has proven righteous and strong. And he did so here in the Spirit and by the Word. That is why we can approach him boldly in time of need, in time of testing. Why? Because he has been there. Consider that today, dear ones. Are you distraught in sadness? Jesus has been there. Are you in a season of testing? Jesus has been there. Are you struggling with some sort of great physical torment? Jesus has been there. Uh, is the evil one pulling you to disregard God's word? Jesus has been there. Are you faced with great dread about a situation that God is bringing you through in life? Jesus has been there as well. And in all these things, he has proven faithful and true. He is your faithful high priest who knows the feelings of your weaknesses. But another great application for this in our lives is the example that Jesus set. Jesus fought these temptations as he was led by the Spirit and as he wielded the sword of the Spirit, God's Word. Now we need to ask a pointed question here. Are you battling testing in your life? And in that testing, are you battling temptation to sin? The overwhelming chance is that you are. Are you fighting that temptation? How is it going? Now remember, Jesus had a choice in this. He, he really did. Now, of course, he didn't sin. Uh, he, he wouldn't sin. He's the Son of God, but the choice was real. Would he trust God's plan and his ways? Would he obey God and resist the devil? Now, listen, we have the same choice in every test, in every temptation. Those of us who are children of God, uh, purchased by his blood, indwelled with the Holy Spirit, we have the same choice that Jesus had. Jesus made his choice, and he fought the battle with the Spirit and the Word. But can I be blunt for a moment? And I'm being blunt to myself as well. If we are not walking in the Spirit and wielding God's Word in the face of temptation, we are not even in the fight. Without those weapons, we are simply being dragged along in our temptation. 
pulled in whatever direction the evil one would have us go. Apart from God's Holy Spirit and the Word of God in our lives, we have no ability to fight these things. Because apart from God's Spirit and His Word, we're left only with our own desires and our own resolve, both of which are sinful. Remember what James said, everyone is tempted when? When he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Without God's Spirit and God's words, we are left only with our desires. That's why this is such a critical example for us to look at. Jesus didn't simply defeat the tempter because he is God, okay? It's easy to think that Jesus got a free pass through all of these hardships because, well, he's God after all. No, he defeated the tempter by the Spirit and the Word. And just as we have the same choice that Jesus had, we can have the same victories that Jesus had. We will not end up sinless. None of us have made it this far sinless. We won't go to the rest of our lives sinless. But in every temptation, we have this battle. We have the same weapons. That's why James can so be so bold as to say in James chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Why can James say this to us as believers? Because this is exactly the example that Jesus left for us. When we walk in the Spirit, we have the power to submit to God and resist the devil. When the Spirit illuminates the Word of God to us, we have the ability to wield that great weapon, which is why Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit. At the beginning, I brought up the story of David and Goliath. David didn't use Saul's armor and sword because he hadn't proven them. He hadn't tested them. But he defeated the Goliath because God was with him. Well, that wouldn't be the only battle that David would fight. There was another foe in David's life, even more formidable than Goliath. It's the same foe that Jesus faced, and that foe was the tempter. Particularly in his sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah, David exhibited the exact opposite of what the Lord Jesus did in this story. David as king, who should have been in the battle with his men, and he was rather comfortably perched on his throne. He should have been out fighting with them. Rather, he was there on his throne and he succumbed to temptation, the desire of the flesh, first in committing adultery, then having a man killed, and in all of this, covering the whole thing in deceit. King Jesus, on the other hand, departed his heavenly throne, walked directly into the battle of temptation, having fasted for 40 days, and in extreme hunger, he faced the direct attack from the devil himself. He wielded the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and he defeated his foe. What is our encouragement from this? Number one, if you are battling temptation in your life, be encouraged. At least you're battling. The fact that you're in the fight is the evidence of God's work in your life. Otherwise, you would simply be giving in, and be at the enemy's mercy. Secondly is this. We don't have to fight these battles alone. Jesus was alone in the wilderness. The Spirit led him there for his testing. 
but we are not alone. If you are God's child, you are indwelt with God's spirit, and also you are surrounded by God's people. We are called to bear one another's burdens. We are called to confess our faults to one another. We all face temptation to sin. Be honest. Fight these battles together. We are in this together for a reason as God is building his church and sanctifying his people. And finally, know this. God is sovereign even over Satan. As a believer, the attacks of spiritual warfare are real and they are strong, but they are never stronger than our Savior. He has gone before us. He has proven himself and he has proven these weapons. He has given us the same weapons, the same resources, and he has promised to be with us always, even in the trial, even in the temptation.